All right, and turn with me this morning again to the book of Acts. We've come to chapter 4 this morning. We'll read the first 22 verses here. Just note before we read that this is the continuation of the story we've been reading, the story we read in chapter 3 a couple weeks ago. Uh, you'll see that verse 1 here of chapter 4 begins, as they were speaking. So it's, it's as they were, uh, this is as Peter is continuing to preach. He healed the crippled man. He was preaching to the crowds that gathered. And this all takes place uh, as that was happening. And this um, story really continues all the way through verse 31 um, that, that we'll continue to look at in weeks to come. So um, chapter 4. First 22 verses, hear God's holy word this morning. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem, and Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, By what power and what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, If we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, let it known to, be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved." Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. When they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them. On account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. And we'll end our reading there. Uh, before we get to the, the main outline that you see in your, outline, your, your bulletin there, the, the three main points, I want you to think for a bit about this confrontation and how it's a bit of a, a David and Goliath setup here. Um, and so I want to think about the nature of this confrontation and what we can learn from it broadly, but also first to understand this scene, we need to know something of the, 
many characters and groups that are introduced here in this chapter. So uh, looking at verse 1 again, the, the priests are mentioned. Of course, the priests ran the temple. Uh, the captain of the temple guard is part of this scene. This would be the, basically the chief of the police of the temple. The temple had their own police. And this was the chief of the police. He was really, uh, he was from the high priestly family himself, but he was number two uh, at the whole temple. Uh, behind only the HP, the high priest. Um, the, the, <laughs> the Sadducees were mentioned here as well. Uh, the Sadducees were an important sect in Jerusalem. Uh, Judaism, kind of like the, the Pharisees, were an important sect. Um, the Sadducees were much smaller, but really had all the power uh, in Jerusalem, the official power uh, under the Romans, um, had a lot of wealth. The high priest was a Sadducee uh, generationally. Uh, one scholar describes the Sadducees as the sort of materialistic rationalists of the day. They denied angels, they denied demons, they denied the resurrection, uh, most of the Old Testament as, as scripture. Um, they also uh, were uh, in cahoots with the Romans to a large degree to maintain their power. Uh, another scholar describes the, the Sadducees this way as unprincipled collaborationists Political sycophants who would sell their mothers to stay in power. And so this, this does seem to be their, their chief concern, even in the New Testament, to maintain their control. It probably explains why, though they had so much influence, they don't really come into play until the very end of the Gospels, uh, of the story of the Gospels. It's, it's not till the, the political aspect seems to be uh, significantly threatened that the Sadducees are really concerned. They, they don't really care about all the theological questions that come up with the Pharisees uh, earlier. Um, and so uh, these are the ones mentioned so far. Peter and John are arrested. And then verses 5 and 6 describes even more that are in this prestigious group that gra- gathers the next day and sticks John and, and Peter in the middle uh, for this interrogation. It mentions rulers. This is probably the Sanhedrin. Uh, the, the group chiefly responsible for uh, uh, in, interrogating and condemning Jesus. Uh, these were Sadducees. Uh, the elders are mentioned. These are essentially civil leaders, heads of tribes. Uh, and then scribes. Uh, the scribes would be mostly Pharisees, probably. Um, and they were essentially uh, religious lawyers uh, of sorts of the day. Uh, Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, Luke mentions, um, these are the highest single authorities. Annas was actually, by this time, technically the former high priest. He was deposed by the Romans, um, but he was still around and exercised a lot of informal authority and was still referred to as the high priest. Uh, it's his son-in-law, Caiaphas, uh, who is officially, at least as far as the Romans are concerned, the high priest now. Um, just an, an interesting side anecdote I came across recently uh, in, in the 1990s, there was a, uh, an ossuary discovered, and that, that's like a small sarcophagus for bones, just for bones. Um, uh, an ossuary discovered outside of Jerusalem in the 1990s uh, with the name, uh, very ornately decorated with the name Caiaphas uh, inscribed on it. And uh, virtually all uh, scholars that study such things are agreed that it's from the first century, and there's really no other famous Caiaphas uh, from that time that would have what's essentially this royal burial. And so it's, it's very likely that this is, this is Caiaphas's um, burial. So you can look that up if you're interested. But so this is, this is the scene. These are the, these are the powerful people 
all the powers of Jerusalem that have gathered against Peter uh, and John. Imagine the, the Denver Broncos lined up against the local peewee team or something like that. That's kind of the scene. It's, it's a David and Goliath scene. The full weight and power of official Judaism has come out and circled around these, these two poor apostles. Um, much of the same group, again, that uh, just recently, despite Jesus' great popularity with all the people, had, had convinced the Romans and the whole city to execute Jesus. Uh, so it's, it doesn't look good for Peter and John here. Another thing I want you to notice about this confrontation uh, is the irrationality of the unbelief of this group gathered against John and Peter, the hardness of their hearts. Note the question that they pose to Peter and John, verse 7. By what power, that is what besides ours, by what power and what name have you done this? Right? They don't deny that the miracle has been done. Um, as we continue to, to read, it's clear that they've, they've arrested the healed man as well. Um, verse 14 re- refers to him uh, standing right there with them. It's Peter, John, and the healed man. Uh, and, and verse 16, the, the group, the group of rulers themselves uh, admit we can't deny this man that's been crippled for 40 years is, is suddenly walking. Uh, no one will deny this spectacular supernatural miracle, and yet they will not consider the possibility that, that God has done this or that Peter is preaching what is true in connection with it. Uh, their, their desire to maintain their power probably uh, seems to make impossible for them to hear the truth, to see what's true. And, and such is the nature of unbelief. Sin is blinding to the truth, right? Until God opens our eyes, softens our hearts, allows us to, to see and understand what is true. We can compare the story of Stephen. Um, a couple chapters before Stephen's death, in chapter 6, Stephen is, is preaching uh, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 10 says, They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Uh, there was nothing they could say. And so what was the response of the rulers there? Was it, Stephen, you're, you speak what's true. Tell us more. We were wrong. No, they, they plot to kill him. They stone him to silence him. This is how hard hearts work. We could compare the, the parable that Jesus tells of, of Lazarus, the poor man Lazarus, the only named person in any of Jesus' parables. Um, the, the scene you remember uh, after Lazarus and the rich man who oppressed him his whole life or didn't help him his whole life, uh, they both die and Lazarus goes to heaven. The rich man, the wicked rich man goes to hell. And in the way Jesus sets up the fictitious scene, they can, they can see each other and speak to each other across this great chasm. And so the rich man is pleading with Lazarus and, and Abraham. Lazarus is there with Abraham saying, send Lazarus back down to earth, as it were, to, back to life to warn my family. They're all going to end up here too. They're terrible people like I was. Uh, and Abraham's response, you recall, is essentially, they have the word of God. Your family has the word of God. If they haven't believed, they won't believe, even if someone would raise from the dead to warn them. And of course, that's the very thing that, that Jesus himself does, rises from the dead, uh, and yet hard hearts still don't believe uh, and so this is the scene here. Two poor apostles with no earthly power or wealth surrounded by all the powers of Jerusalem and Judaism um, with hardened hearts that, that won't consider the truth uh, apart from God's 
sovereignly changing their hearts. And what I want to consider with each of the points this morning, as you'll see on your outline, is how the apostles are living in the, the, the promises of Jesus, how they're living out and, and seeing play out in their lives the promises of Jesus to them, even though he's not bodily with them anymore. How, how do we see that so far in what we've talked about? Well, in chapter 1, just before the ascension, Jesus said to these apostles, he said, you will be my witnesses. And here they are. That, that's their high calling. Jesus would call them to witness to his lordship and his salvation. And not just to friendly locals on the street, right? But, but to powerful rulers who could take their lives. And here they are. We also see them living out Jesus' promise earlier to them, you will be persecuted. You will be persecuted. Uh, John 15, for example, Jesus said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. All these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. This also was a promise of Jesus. This is a, a part, we understand, of discipleship of Jesus. Uh, Paul would later remind Timothy of this in 2 Timothy 3. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, he said. So they were learning. We need to learn. Uh, as, as Bonhoeffer put it, discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ. So they're living out the promises of Christ. And, and in the next three, the, the three points you have on your outline there as we look further at I want to look further at ways that they're living out the promises of Jesus. And I want to do that through the eyes, as it were, of, of the powerful leaders here. Uh, so that's, that's what makes for the, the outline as you see it. Three observations. So through the eyes of these leaders, uh, the focus here is on verse 13. Where we're, we're, as these leaders are being confounded uh, in their confrontation with Peter and John, uh, verse 13 tells us three things they observed about these servants of Jesus. So that's what we're going to look at this morning and see through those three things how they're living out uh, the promises of Jesus. So first observation, verse 13, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John or the, the boldness. I'm going to use the word boldness. It's, it's more often translated boldness throughout the book of Acts. Uh, they saw their boldness. What, what does that mean here? It means they saw Peter and John were not afraid of them, though they had every, every outward reason to be. Uh, they weren't afraid of their power to destroy them. Uh, Peter and John weren't cautious about what they said. They weren't looking for favor from these powerful rulers. They, weren't, they, they were simply being consistent, open witnesses for Jesus. Um, the rulers were witnessing the boldness of Peter and John in the lordship of Christ. They were standing in their confidence in the lordship of Christ. Their lord was over these human rulers. He's, he's reigning until all of his enemies are under his feet, as, as Peter said in his sermon in chapter 2. Uh, they knew they would be called to suffer after the pattern of their lord, but that they would be rewarded with him. Uh, even if they were called to die for him, they would raise with him one day. Where does their boldness come from ultimately? Well, again, we're told that they're filled with the Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit, verse um, 8, again, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. And we, we studied previously back in chapter 2, 
What does it mean in the book of Acts when someone is filled with the Spirit? Because over and over people get filled with the Spirit in the book of Acts. And virtually every single time, it's to speak about Jesus. It's simply to speak about Jesus. Stephen, Stephen is filled with the Spirit. He speaks about Jesus and he's stoned. Uh, Paul is confronted and so he's filled with the Spirit and he proclaims Christ. Uh, over and over again. We see that again here. And there's, there's another piece of living out the promises of Jesus. Pro- Jesus promised to send his spirit, to fill them, to be with them. Uh, look at how that boldness uh, is worked out in, in Peter's little speech here, what we have recorded of it. Verse 10, uh, this man was healed by Jesus. Again, he says, the one that you crucified. Uh, there's, there's no dancing around the truth uh, with, with these powerful rulers who had condemned Jesus. He's, he doesn't say, you know, this is all a big misunderstanding. He said, this was Jesus. You killed him. Uh, verse 11, he quotes Psalm 118. This Jesus is, is the stone of Psalm 118, he says. Uh, and you are the builders. It's another clear accusation. Uh, and Psalm 118 pictures, as, as these leaders would know well, uh, it pictures a stone quarry and builders going around the quarry and, and in checking out the cut stones, trying to find cut stones that would fit into their building just right. And they, they find one huge stone and decide it's worthless and they throw it aside. And this stone is established then as the cornerstone of the building, the most important foundational stone. And, and probably originally pictures pagan kings rejecting Israel's king, uh, not seeing him as, as God's anointed king. Uh, and ultimately finds fulfillment in Christ uh, as the stone that was rejected, but God establishes the foundation of all things. And Peter says here, you, you are those builders. It, it's quite an accusation. You Sanhedrin, you scribes, you priests, you're like the pagans who can't recognize what God is doing. Uh, you ought to be on trial. Uh, you need to turn to Jesus. And then boldly, and perhaps most famously, in verse 12, Peter says, And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Uh, a little while back, a, a person I know, some kind of Christian profession at least, posted on social media uh, something that was intended as a sort of finger-wagging at, at Christian's to be more accepting of, of LGBT, etc., identity in the church, um, uh, and not in a biblical way, but the, the, essentially said this, don't you realize it's the inclusivity of Jesus that is so offensive? And I thought about that, and I thought, yes, the inclusivity of Jesus is and was offensive many times. Jesus dining with tax collectors and prostitutes, and it ought to be something that stretches us and maybe offends us at times. But the exclusivity of Jesus is just as offensive. Uh, and, and more in our culture, I would say. Uh, Jesus tells parables about people who, were, who were thought, thought they were good little believers, part of the church, and then find themselves shut out at the judgment in disbelief. And Jesus really brings both of those things together perfectly. This, this uh, statement of Peter does as well, that in Jesus, anyone can be saved. Right? No matter who you are, what you've done, what your background is, you can be saved. It's absolutely inclusive of anyone, the invitation. 
but at the same time, only in Jesus can you be saved. It's absolutely exclusive of any other possibility of salvation. So Peter boldly speaks the hard truth. Uh, boldness as he's filled with the Holy Spirit. I, I want you to remember, though, also what Peter later wrote about boldly witnessing for Christ. Uh, in First in Peter 3, there's a verse that's very famous and, and very often used about boldly speaking for Christ. And it's often quoted in, in context of, of apologetics and that kind of thing. Uh, Peter urges the church to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. The rest of that sentence is not always included. Uh, Peter goes on, again, being prepared to make a defense, he says, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Um, and he goes on to elaborate on that as well. Peter here answered with great boldness and yet with respect. There, there's no compromise, there's no holding back on the truth. There's no attempt to walk the line between denying the truth and yet, you know, sort of protecting themselves against these powerful rulers. Not at all. And yet there's, there's no ad hominem attack. There's no you idiot rulers or anything like that. There's clear truth and, and respect. And so it's, it's a display of eloquence and winsomeness and boldness and respect from these men who had shortly previously been, been rather cowardly, fumbling disciples and uh, in that, I would suggest we see another of Jesus' promises worked out, uh, again, amazingly in this scene. Uh, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus had promised this. He said, when they bring you before synagogues and rulers and authorities, here they are, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Uh, it, it worked out here in, in a very clear and amazing way. Uh, later in his ministry, Jesus said essentially the same thing, Luke 21. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate before how to answer, by which I think he means don't worry and, and fret over that, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom, Jesus said which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Again, they're, they're living in the blessing of that promise here as well. And that's the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that's in you. Right? Be filled with the Holy Spirit, as Paul says, to, to fully trust and witness for Jesus. Uh, second observation. So the rulers observed, verse 13, their confidence or their boldness. Uh, secondly, it says they understood that they were uneducated and untrained men. They were uneducated. They, they saw their, their weakness, that they were totally out of place and unqualified, um, especially the way this conversation was going. Uh, both of the terms, uneducated, untrained, uh, mean that John and Peter, it doesn't mean that they're illiterate or they've had no education at all, but they've had very, very little education relative. They haven't had the, the, the elite education that all the rest of this people in this, in this giant circle have had, um, the high-end education. Uh, think about when the, when the Supreme Court of the United States hears a case. Virtually everybody in the room has an Ivy League law degree, right? Maybe PhDs on top of that. Uh, to have someone arguing a case there with a, with a GED, you know, it doesn't happen, right? It'd be kind of silly. Um, it, 
what, what they observe here about Peter and John probably points also to the fact they're not trained in rhetoric. They haven't been trained to publicly go toe-to-toe with, with people like this, right? Uh, another mental picture might be, you know, millionaires and billionaires with their lawyers and their fancy suits gathered in a circle around two hicks in dirty overalls with, with backwoods accents, right? That's, that's kind of how the rulers are, are viewing this. And how is it that it's going this way? They're, they're kind of in disbelief. But this is a good reminder that this is the way that God works. It's the way that God has promised to work, through, through work, uh, weakness, what the world views as weakness and foolishness, uh, through humility, through the word, and not a sword. Uh, through the message of the cross, the cross is the ultimate example of this. Uh, hear how uh, this is put later in, in Jesus' word. So one example of them living out Jesus' word that I'm the only example I'm using that actually comes after this scene, but uh, through the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, where he writes, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Uh, That's certainly being lived out here. And I want to bring that together with another promise of Jesus that's worked out here, which he made to these apostles, when he simply said, I will build my church. I will build my church because that's a promise to build his church, not through wealth and power and, and political power and armies and force, but through a Savior that came in, in humiliation and died, whose servants are not sophisticated and are not powerful, who are poor nobodies. And yet we read that, that being lived out incredibly. Look at verse 4 again. They, they seem to interrupt Peter's preaching to arrest him, but many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Uh, the last we knew from chapter 2, the church had come to 3,000, and now there's this healing, and, and Peter preaches to the crowds that gather, and, and the number of men is 5,000 now. Um, by, by one estimate, I suppose it's a hard thing to estimate, but one, one historian's estimate is that there were about 20,000 Christians in Jerusalem by the time of Stephen's stoning, which, which you remember is, is kind of a, a, a dividing line because after that the, the church was, there was a persecution and much of the church was scattered over the Roman Empire. Uh, but, but incredible the way that God was using weakness to build his church to change hearts. And, and the way God does this leaves no doubt that it's by his spirit. It's, it's through the power of his word. Um, we'll see throughout the book of Acts, God delighting to work through suffering, through weakness, through inadequate people who yet put their faith in him. Uh, he'll work through arrests and threats and beatings and extortions and executions. And the Holy Spirit through those things will powerfully uh, use his word to grant salvation to more and more people. Uh, Paul many times highlights the word of God working powerfully through circumstances that would seem to work totally against it. Right? In, uh, in, he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, uh, I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. If all, if all we read was just that sentence, we'd think Paul is just you know, lamenting, complaining to Timothy. 
But the rest of that sentence is, but the word of God is not bound. He's encouraging Timothy. Look, I'm, I'm all tied up. It, it would seem like my ministry was ended, but, but God is blessing his word. He says something similar, and he writes to the Philippians. Writing to the Philippians, Paul's under house arrest in Rome. And in the first chapter, he, he, uh, he knows they know this. And he says, I, I want you to know that, that my imprisonment has actually worked out for the furtherance of the gospel. Right? He says, he gives two examples. He says, all, all the praetorian guard, all the sort of inner guard of the emperor, knows about Christ now. Presumably because they've been on a shift, you know, taking turns guarding Paul. And Paul's been preaching to them, you know, because they, they, they had to stand there. And so all of them know about Christ now. And he says, the whole church here in Rome is, is more emboldened for Christ because I'm imprisoned. And, and Paul is just amazed uh, to see God work through weakness like that. So praise God, he works through weakness, through ignorant backwoods hicks like us, right? And Peter and John. The third observation that the rulers make, verse 13 again, they observe the confidence of Peter and John. Uh, they're uneducated, untrained, and they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. The third observation is that they were with Jesus. It's a very interesting statement. Um, just recall that many of, these, many of these rulers had very recently been involved in the interrogation of Jesus. Right? And certainly it was fresh in their minds how unflinchingly and confoundingly confident and wise Jesus had been. Um, and they're having deja vu in confronting uh, these two poor apostles. Uh, and in fact, in some sense, they're exactly right. It is, it is the training that they had with Jesus. They, they, didn't, they were not educated men. They didn't receive a, an elite education uh, in rhetoric and, and, and so on, and law. But it was the training they had with Jesus and the Holy Spirit they received from him that's equipped them with such wisdom and boldness. And they're probably seeing Jesus shining through Peter and John, as it were, in, in a number of ways, ways that they don't even realize or, or can articulate. Uh, Kent Hughes has this insightful comment on, on this observation of the rulers. He says, What the Sanhedrin did not perhaps understand was that the apostles were still companions of Jesus. They were indwelt by the Spirit of Christ, compelling their wills, energizing their bodies, so that the Sanhedrin was not seeing only them, but Christ. Their, their ongoing communion with Christ is still evident, visible in a sense. The Spirit of Christ in them was, was visible in their faithfulness. And, and note here, it's not, it's not the miracle we're talking about at this point that, that's evidencing something about Christ. It's, it's their faithfulness, uh, their boldness. Uh, here we see them living in Christ's promise, I will be with you to the end of the age. I will be with you. And that same promise is for you. This same communion with Christ is for you. We also, I would suggest, see them living out Jesus' promise to them, if you abide in me. And we might pause and think, what, what does that mean? that they would abide in Jesus. It's if, if you will live in union with me as loved and redeemed uh, children of God, servants of the King with full assurance of salvation and love and, and joy, following me, and so on. If you abide in me, ask whatever you wish, Jesus promised. 
Right? Whatever, you, whatever you ask in, in my name, in, in my will, in my promises. And Jesus is answering their prayers to be with them and equip them in this moment. And, and lest that sound speculative, this chapter ends with prayers for this exact thing. Look at verse 29. We didn't get to this week yet, but uh, verse 29. And now, Lord, here's a, a prayer. Uh, Take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. Same word, boldness. I'd ask you this morning, do others see Jesus in you? Uh, The way that even these hardened Jesus uh, haters saw it in uh, John and Peter. Well, I want to expand just a little bit on what God's Word teaches us here before we close. I just want to close with three encouragements for you this morning by way of application. Uh, Number one uh, is in your weakness and your inadequacies, uh, don't be ashamed, don't be fearful. Uh, Don't shy away from being a witness for Christ. Uh, Let your weaknesses drive you to the Holy Spirit, drive you to a God who loves to do great things, through small things, through, through weakness, and what thing, things that are foolish to the world, things that are broken and poor, hopeless. Uh, this story shows the reality that God will use your faithfulness uh, to confirm some in their, in their hardness, their unbelief perhaps, but also to bring blessing to others, to call people to himself. And that doesn't always work out the way that we'd like to or the way that we're praying. But God uses your faithfulness, as he does here in in both directions with with Peter and John. Listen to Paul's prayer of thanks uh, in 2 Corinthians 2. He says, Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So through the faithfulness of his people, the fragrance of Christ is being spread everywhere. He says, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. And as long as you are faithful and represent Jesus with grace, um, it's not up to you ultimately whether you're a fragrance of death to some or a fragrance of life to others. Uh, but God will use you trust God to be faithful, especially in your weakness. This is very much uh, related to the, the main point that, that the men's Bible study considered yesterday in the parable of the seed growing secretly. Uh, that seed that's invisible and takes a long time to grow. And we don't know what it's doing or when it's going to come up or how it works. Uh, and yet the, the point was to, to trust, uh, to have faith in the God who gives the increase. Uh, second encouragement to you is to live in Jesus' promises, uh, as we see that the apostles doing here. Uh, Jesus will shine through you. Remember that the rulers finally come to think, you know, this, these people must have been with Jesus. Jesus will shine through you as you absorb his word and his promises, as they become a part of you, as you really believe them. Um, and Jesus' promises, I would suggest, will be compelling and freeing at the same time as you witness for Christ. They'll be compelling and freeing at the same time. The apostles were compelled uh, by Jesus and his promises. Look at verse 20, where they respond, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. We cannot stop, no matter what you say or threaten. It reminds us of Martin Luther famously 
saying, if he actually said it, here I stand, I can do no other. Um, Jesus is Lord. He's my Lord and Savior. I, I can and want to do no other than live for him right, and tell of him. Um, you ought to be compelled by the person, the promise of Jesus. Secondly, the apostles were freed. They were compelled. They were also freed. They, they had this boldness. Right? And the boldness, that the, the Greek word that's translated boldness there is sometimes used uh, in ancient Greek of the, the freedom that citizens had to speak out freely, openly honestly, because they had a secure relationship to Rome, um, to the throne. Obviously, there's be some, some limit to that. It's, it's something somewhat parallel to our, our concept of the freedom of speech. Right? Because of your identity as a U.S. citizen, you, you have the boldness, the freeness in that sense, to disagree with the president or to criticize a, a district court's ruling right? with reasonable expectation that the court's will uphold your right to do that as a citizen. Well, knowing who you are in Christ is not only compelling, but freeing to live for him, to witness for him. What can man do to me? As the psalmist asks, I'm a son of the king. I've already died. Um, I, I, just before I came here, I saw the top story on CNN.com this morning, kind of an unusual top story, but it was about this guy who just passed away and on his deathbed confessed to his daughter that for 50 years uh, he was living under a false name, running from the authorities. I, and I didn't actually read the whole article, so I don't know what he did. Um, but he was a, a fugitive for 50 years, raised his family, lived a, uh, you know, a normal life, but a secret life. Right? And I thought of, I thought of this um, application this morning, that we don't, have to, we don't have to hide. We're freed by the promises and the person of Christ. Uh, and then thirdly and finally, this passage speaks to what, what do Christians do when they're commanded to do what's wrong? And that's a big question, a big topic that we're not really going to get into uh, this morning. But the simple answer is, is to obey Christ. And we see that in this passage. But, but the encouragement here as well is that you need to be ready to suffer for Christ. Maybe you need to be ready to be fired from your job for the sake of Christ and, and to see him glorified and providing for you in some other way. You need to be ready to be ridiculed or maybe lose a friend, maybe be arrested someday. Uh, be prepared to suffer with Christ. Let's bring these things to him uh, in prayer. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you again for your uh, holy and perfect word uh, that gives light to our paths, uh, that makes the simple wise. Uh, we pray that you would um, imprint these things on our hearts this morning, uh, that we would, uh, in particular, uh, be mindful of uh, and embrace and incorporate into our thinking uh, and our lives and really believe the promises of Jesus. They would be real to us each day, that we would uh, live them out actively, that we would be thankful for them. Uh, we thank you for the example uh, of the way that you're caring for your servants in this passage, uh, for all the ways that you care for and guide us. And we pray that we would be uh, attentive to those things. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.